All right, well, it has been a long two weeks, but we are back uh, with more Talking as a Free Action, uh, the D&D DM-focused podcast where we mostly share uh, random anecdotes and uh, try to make you laugh. Uh, I am your host, Owen, here uh, with my uh, esteemed co-host and uh, co-founder, Marvin. How you doing, man? Um, You know, I'm here. How about you? Uh, You know, not bad. Gotta be honest, last week was a little bit empty without us. Um, Oh, yeah. So, uh, but we're back now, and uh, that's what matters. Um, also, slowly getting through the uh, thumbnails and such to update the YouTube channel. So, you know, that's been a, a fun challenge as well. Um, so, that being said, uh, I think we have a pretty fun topic uh, planned for today. Uh, yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we're going to be talking about other game systems. Yeah. Um, 5e adjacent, of course, but... Uh, but yeah, uh, so today we'll be go ahead and uh, we'll be going ahead. Um, <laughs> we'll be going over uh, different game systems that we've kind of had experience with, uh, some things that we liked about those things. Um, you know, maybe what Five E can draw from that, um, or what your own game system can draw from that if you're in the the process of designing your own. Um, since uh, I think both of us has kind of have kind of dabbled a little bit with that in the past. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, I'm still dabbling. Send help. <laughs> well, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get there at some point or another. Oh, uh, before we actually get started, Dustin actually asked me if I would consider uh, turning LFO into a 5e module. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Hmm. And I what was your response to, to that? <laughs> You know what's funny is um, he had actually messaged me first and he was like, hey, have you ever thought about monetizing LFO? And I was like, no, because it is not and has never been my project. So <laughs> highly recommend you ask Marvin instead. <laughs> oh, that's great. Supremely flattered, but like, you know, it'd be really weird for me to work in a game system and then not GM the first games of that system. It really would. Or like never GM any games for that system. <laughs> I mean, I guess in some respects, that's actually really probably not a bad idea if you're you know trying to design your own system to try and get somebody else to understand the rules and then DM for you. Um, sure. I don't know if that's your step one, though. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't think so. So, um, uh, Real quick, Combustible Jello has told us to hydrate, even though we've been streaming for, you know, two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I don't have anything to hydrate with, so... How many times do we have to go over this? Look, man, I have bad drinking habits, alright? Um, <laughs> what can I say? Um, so, but, uh, but I will, I will hydrate in spirit. Does that count? No, I hate... <laughs> this is like, uh... we're in the movie where they cue a smash cut, and I'm literally just face down in my keyboard. <laughs> Um, it's like, you know, look, we're only going to be on for like a couple of hours tops. Like, I think I'll be okay. Um, I also just got back from dinner, so I'm actually pretty good on that sort of thing. A likely story. (laughs) So, yes, combustible jello, I will, (sighs) is he really going to make me get up to go get a drink? It sounds like he is. All right. Oh, KGB, thanks for the prime, my dude. Five months. (laughs) Fine, I will be right back to go hydrate now. He did this. 
Got him. We did it, Tommy. We did it. While we wait for Owen, how's everybody doing today? Okay, so it just occurred to me, why am I fulfilling a channel rewards for your channel? <laughs> These aren't even my points. I specifically don't put Hydrate on mine because I don't want to be told what to do. Because this is both of our show. That's fair enough. I don't know about you, but I typically try not to keep drinks around my computer at all because I just don't trust myself. Oh, I keep them on a whole separate table as far from my computer as I can get. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Ew, bunny. <laughs> Please don't go there. I'm trying to keep this PG-13. Um, did hydrate. <laughs> um, so anyways, um, so I guess for those of you who probably don't know, you should probably describe what LFO is, given that we just kind of talked about it for five minutes. Well, I guess since it is my project, I will start. LFO is uh, every weeb's wet dream when it comes to tabletop role-playing games. If you like Final Fantasy, there's Final Fantasy. If you like Fire Emblem, there's Fire Emblem. What weeb doesn't love Fire Emblem? Conceptually, it's Sword Art Online. As far as the setting goes. Main setting. It's basically that. What Weeb doesn't like the setting of Sword Art Online. Regardless <laughs> of how they feel about the series. If nothing else about the series. <laughs> exactly. Imagine having a Keyblade. Trapped in a video game. How many people haven't dreamed about this? Gonna be honest. That story sounds like it would just take about as long to resolve as it takes for the Keyblade keyblade wielders to make it to the main gm console i mean is kingdom hearts look that's all sora ever has to do and yet it takes 40 hours well to be fair if they cut out the middle bit of kingdom hearts 3 it only took about 30 minutes it took like two hours god so bad <laughs> Oh, Nomura, why'd you do this to us? Um, uh, because he hates us and Square Enix and everything we stand for. He just wanted to make a really cool Final Fantasy thirteen game and got stuck on this Kingdom Hearts project instead. So. <laughs> Get a better Final Fantasy thirteen. I don't know, man. A while back I saw like a... Like a, a I want to say it was like an hour long. Just like... Autopsy, I guess, is the best way I could describe it of Final Fantasy thirteen. Um like I don't know how else to describe it. It was fifteen, not thirteen. <laughs> you might be right, actually. I think it probably is fifteen. I've lost count of them somehow. I... Anyways. Thirteen was the one that I didn't even bother to play. That makes sense. I think I did play thirteen for for a little bit. It was mostly just a really long hallway, gonna be honest. Um, yeah, that sounds right. And, and none of the characters were likable in any capacity. <laughs> like, I don't know who Excuse they. Excuse me. Saz Katzroy is delightful. Saz was. Saz has a bird shitting in his hair. Like, you can't tell me that guy doesn't smell awful. I can tell you whatever I want. 
<laughs> the entire game is a hallway. <laughs> that feels like a different song, right? There's Life is a Highway, but then there's the, the, This Game's a Hallway. This game's a hallway. I don't I don't want to keep going. This sounds depressing. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um so LFO uh it takes elements of those games. Um, how does it incorporate those elements into that system? Well, you see, it doesn't really. Okay. So it's just except, a setting thing? Except in every way possible. All of the classes come straight from a Kingdom Heart or Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy game. Everyone. I can appreciate uh, that. All of the spells, almost all of the spells, Final Fantasy spells. All of the other powers, mostly, come from Kingdom Hearts or Sword Art Online. Classes, races, etc., etc. All those video games I said. And is the system... Draw, I know the answer to this, but is the system like created in isolation, or did you draw inspiration from any other systems? Well, since you know the answer to this already, you won't be surprised when I tell you that it is uh, originally based on Star Wars Saga Edition. But the rest of you might be surprised to know that I like that system that much that I uh, homebrewed a whole thing based off of it. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, it's a... Saga's Edition has a good kernel of a system there. I think that there are a few, like, very key oversights that make the system not as great as it could be. Um, but there's definitely something there that makes it enjoyable. Um, Absolutely. I didn't fix any of those things that are wrong with it, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, one step at a time, I guess. Um <laughs> Um, so I guess that's a good springboard into the, the main topic then. So, you know, talking about other systems and such kind of, um, you know, obviously a lot of us do play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, like 5th edition, as well as, you know, 3.5 in the past. Um, so uh, heroic characters getting AC every level made non-heroic characters pointless. And, mm, I don't know about that. Kind of. It kind of does. Yeah. However, so... most NPCs with stat blocks have something comparable to heroic levels. So, like, eh. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I think with, with like, 5th edition and 3.5, you know, serving kind of as the baseline for the sorts of, like, you know, roleplay system that we play with, um, there definitely does leave some stuff to be desired, and I think there's things that you can take out of it. But if you look at a system like Saga's Edition, um, as Bunny was kind of alluding to in the comment section here, um, in that particular system, you're you don't have any saving throws, unlike in you know traditional Dungeons and Dragons. Instead, you have um, three different defensive scores: um, one for reflex, one for wisdom, and then one for fortitude, um, which is constitution. So, um, and reflex being dexterity, wisdom being wisdom, was uh, will will defense being wisdom, I think. Um, yeah. And so basically any time that you are, you know, using a ability or force power, you're always rolling against one of those three core defenses. Um, and so I think that that has a couple of upsides. The primary upside of the three defense system is 
as an offense, like the offensive character is always the one who's rolling something, which I think makes it a little bit easier to teach um, mm -hmm. as opposed to 3.5 in fifth edition, where it's sometimes ambiguous who should be rolling what dice. And I think that that can be, you know, well, not a huge barrier of entry. It does make things a little bit more difficult to understand because if, you know, someone is rolling us to cast a fireball spell, it's not necessarily intuitive that the person who's on the defense should be rolling and why that's so different from a firebolt spell where, you know, you're essentially hucking a firebolt, a firebolt at somebody. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with that. Um, it does have that benefit that the, uh, just to reiterate that the attacker is always the one rolling. Um, however, as a downside to that same thing, you have to compare a lot of numbers. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I think that because that's the, um, because you're always rolling against those defenses, it does inherently make it a little bit more difficult to, to scale the defenses all that well. So like one thing that I think that fifth edition does really well is even though a character can be a high level, the DCs don't actually fluctuate all that that much once the character hits like, you know, say like seventh level or something. Because basically, once they max out their their respective attribute, the DCs don't generally change all that much from there. Which means that the entire game can be balanced around a a potential spell save DC of eighteen, which is about as high as it's going to go for characters of that level until they you know pump up to their proficiency their proficiency bonus a bit. Mm -hmm. With sagas, you don't really have that because. Um, I mean, one, with the way that they calculated the defenses, it gets a little bit wonky, but um, but because you do have those three different defenses, you do need to find a way to make it relevant for multiple levels of the game, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I guess now we can probably talk about exactly what Bunny was talking about with the level factoring into AC. Uh, sure. In uh, Star Wars Saga Edition, your reflex defense which is used primarily as your AC um, because it is the defense that most weapon attacks will target, is calculated by 10 plus your level plus a bonus determined based by, on your classes and any miscellaneous bonuses. Which can be so, numerous. <laughs> which can be very numerous. Um... In Saga Edition, bonuses to defenses and attacks will stack as long as they do not have the same name for the bonus type. So you can have a dodge bonus and a shield bonus and an armor bonus, but you can't have two dodge bonuses. You just take the highest one. Right, um, and uh, I think in that system they do have some rare unnamed bonuses, which always stack. Yes. Uh, so a level one character will have, you know, with 12 or a 14 dexterity, will have 10 plus one for level one plus two for their dexterity plus between one and two for their class, which is, which comes out to a 14 or 15. Seems reasonable. Yeah, not bad at all. Uh, however... A level 10 character will have 10 plus 10 for their level plus between 1 and 3 for their class and probably 
three more for their dexterity, which brings you to 24 to 26, which feels really high. Yeah, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, though, with that system is that the bonuses to attack tend to be much higher as well. Um, yes. With the standard, like, bonus for a lot of stuff is just, like, a standard plus five, which, you know, is a mm -hmm. significant difference on a d20. Yes. Um, however, Bunny's original point about non-heroic characters, uh, the vast majority of NPCs have some amount of what they call non-heroic levels which just means levels that are not tied to a single class. Mm -hmm. um, and they effectively count as one-fourth of a heroic level. That's oh, how they're okay. treated. That's the, the bonuses they give. Um, so four levels of non-heroic will get you plus one to all of the things that you would normally get as a heroic character. So I guess that's really just a way to kind of boost the HP pool of the enemy in question, isn't it? It gives you the boost to HP, even though non-heroic has the smallest hit die of like a D3 or a D4. Um, so it gives you more hit dice to roll, and you do get some amount of AC bonus from being non-heroic, because you do have levels. Um, but your attack bonus doesn't go up, as frequently as a heroic characters would. So you're not hitting as often with those non-heroic NPCs. Yeah. Um, one thing I do think that Saga's Edition did do well... Um, well, I guess one thing to kind of close and comment on that. Uh, one of the knock-on effects of having your AC scale that way is it does actually replicate the Star Wars movies in some respect, in that basically mm -hmm. you're impervious to damage from no names. Um, in most situations not not that you can't get hurt but it's increasingly unlikely for your for your named character heroic character to be gunned down by a bunch of stormtroopers the higher in level you get similar to like how you might watch you know episode four or five where you know tons of stormtroopers are firing away and just nothing hits the mark yeah it does it does a very good job of replicating that even though stormtroopers are supposed to be some of the best shots in the galaxy i'm not salty um. <laughs> um, but but I think that I think that one of the strengths of like fifth edition is its ease of teaching people, and I think that um, that happens by kind of making things less complex in some way and finding elegant mm -hmm. solutions to um, to you know kind of replicate the broad strokes of things in in the various systems. Um, yeah. So I guess that being said, what do you think is a strength of Saga Edition as a system? Oh, um, I actually very much like that there are only five base classes. Okay. They fit a lot of variety into those five base classes. And how you progress depends mostly on your prestige classes and feat choices. Mm -hmm. um, I think that does a lot to simplify character creation because you only have five choices. And... Um, it, it makes your, your class choice feel like you don't have to try as hard to optimize your level one. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, kind of. I mean, along the, the lines of character creation, I think one of the things that I always really enjoyed about sagas is that you get something at every level, which is not mm-hmm. the case in 5th edition a lot of the time. Um, or, you know, sometimes you don't get something very good in 5th edition. Um, so I, I do like that every level up does feel significant for the character in some way. Uh, that is true. I do like the talent system. Um Again, that gives you another level of customization that most systems don't have because you have such a wide pool of talents to choose from. And it's very rare that any two people given the same class will pick the same talent. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of variety there. Um, And especially once you start expanding into some of the prestige classes, I think that there's a lot of customization available for the system, despite everybody kind of ostensibly starting at one of five starting positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's definitely an upside, I would say. What do you think is maybe the biggest weakness of the system? The defenses, while it, while they do make it very easy to teach people how to play the system because the person on the offensive is always rolling, um it doesn't feel very often like most of the defenses are useful um and i feel like if you have the same name and the same calculations they should feel equal and they just don't is that because there aren't like a variety of different ways to target the various defenses or um it's not even that it's just Reflex is used for almost everything. And then Fortitude has a purpose. Um, Damage threshold, which if you take more damage than your damage threshold, you start to take minuses. Um, But I guess I just also don't like damage threshold systems. (laughs) Um, Oh, like mega damage or something? Yeah, while while it makes sense that if you take a certain amount of damage, you will take minuses, um, I don't like how it feels as a player to take minuses just for arbitrary damage rolls, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if there's a spell or ability, I can prepare for that. If there's a spell that says you take a minus two to everything, I can say, well, I know about this spell... I can try to counter the spell or something. Uh, but if if the DM just rolls a high damage roll and I start to take minus one or minus two or minus five on everything and it compounds because, you know, defenses also take that hit, I'm just not going to have a good time once I take that first or second minus. Yeah, and it was... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think in that system you could spend, what, three swift actions or something to go up on the track? Yeah. Which is basically your whole turn. It is literally your whole turn. And granted, you could split that up. Um, You could do two swift actions at the end of one turn and then a swift action at the beginning of the next turn. Mm. But, I don't know, using a whole turn's worth of actions to not take a minus that didn't feel good to take. I don't like that. Um, so, like, 
the fortitude defense feels unnecessary only because I don't like the main thing it's used for. Right, because it's not like there are a lot of attacks that target fortitude specifically. Um, usually its primary influence on the game is just what your character's damage threshold is. Yeah. Um, uh, KGB is saying counter damage threshold by having a stupid high damage threshold because Shin's DT was higher than a TIE fighter. And to that I say, not everybody is building a martial artist. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, not a stretch to say that your character Shin was built different. Um, literally? <laughs> um, oh boy. Yeah, literally at the end of at the epilogue, right? Um, but one thing I think that, um, that I really did enjoy from Sagas as well, another upside, is vehicle combat was super clear on how it functioned. Mm-hmm. And actually pretty dynamic, um, unlike vehicle combat in most other systems that I've seen. Um, and that's something that I really appreciate, because I think that when you have dedicated rules for that sort of thing, and it's very clear on what those, like what to do, I think that it kind of gets the creative juices kind of flowing, for, as a DM at least, to actually start to incorporate that kind of stuff into your campaign. Um, whereas like in 5e, because the rules on how like vehicles work are so kind of... I think they're buried in the DMG. I'm not even 100% certain if they're there, but I think they're buried... Oh, sorry. I think they're buried in the GM- in the DMG, and they're not super clear on how they function, right? Um, it's mm-hmm. not, like... It's not incredibly clear how, like, a vehicle's initiative should be... should operate in the context of a larger combat encounter, and thus you can end up in these weird situations where you almost want to avoid fights that take place, like, at sea or on airships or something, because it's not super clear what each character could or should be doing and what actually would be helpful in those circumstances. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I have literally never wanted to use vehicles as a DM outside of Star Wars games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they, they did that as a, as a means to incorporate the flavor of what Star Wars is. Because... Mm-hmm. The climactic final battle of the first movie was a spaceship battle. Yeah, and they often feature pretty significantly in the plot of the series anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, heck, I think it was the episode 8 or something, or episode episode 7 or 8 or whatever, where, like, I think it was 8, where, like, the entire B-plot of the movie was the, the two ships slow-boating away from one another, right? Um, it was 8. Yeah, episode 8. Um followed by, you know, breaking the physics of the of the entire universe, but whatever. Um, <laughs> episode 4 and 6 both end on big ship fights. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they feature pretty significantly in every single Star Wars film. Um, yeah. Whereas, like, as a DM, like, I almost go out of my way to avoid fights that take place between two vessels. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's partly just because, like, the rules are somewhat ill-defined and I don't really want to have to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> um, so, you know, but maybe I should maybe I should be drawing from Saga's edition in order to work out the rules for it. Maybe that would be better. I mean, yeah, that can't hurt. Like, um, like, for me, like, one of the most memorable, one of the more memorable combat encounters I ran for Saga's edition was one where I had a like a character-level combat encounter as well as a starship-level combat encounter happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always really enjoyed that because it gave the the character who wanted to specialize in starships an opportunity to do that thing while allowing everybody who specialized at, like, you know, kind of personnel combat um, to 
you know, kind of get to do their thing and not feeling like they're useless during that during that encounter. So I always thought that was a really fun way to give everybody their opportunity to shine in the same combat. And it was fun to kind of know that the stuff that was happening outside of that ship, because, you know, the characters were fight the, the, the character level combat was happening on one of the ships that was on the battlefield. So it was cool to know that that the stuff that was happening outside of the ship could impact things that were happening during that combat encounter um, for the players involved. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess technically you could do that for 5th edition, um, only instead of starships you'd probably be using either boats or airships if you're using that sort of setting. Um, and that could lead to a, an interesting combat encounter as well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that the rules for 5th edition are a little bit muddled as to how some of that stuff works. So, anyways, that's a, uh, I guess neither here nor there. Any closing thoughts on sagas before we move on to another system? Sith Lord is my favorite prestige class in any system ever. Particular reason why? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty cool subclass, not gonna lie. Um, or pretty cool prestige class, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess speaking of prestiges, I know that was one of the things they did get rid of in, in uh, 5e. How do you feel about that? It is a. It was an adjustment, we'll say. Uh, I have very often found a lot of my joy in character development and character growth in prestige classes and multi-classing for most systems that I've played. So to not have prestige classes exist and instead be just a character path option uh usually selected at like third level was very awkward for me yeah i think it's kind of a give and take right because like in a way the subclasses kind of are the prestige classes um in a lot of ways and so because you pick them so early it does mean that you know statistically more people get to actually use them Whereas yeah. with prestige classes, since you only would get them usually at level 6 and 3.5 at least, I don't know what it is for Pathfinder. Um, you know, or And I think Sagas was also like level 6 or 7. Um, honestly, if you were just playing from level 1 on, most campaigns would just never get that far um, to, to where you can even pick one. And if you did, you almost certainly would never get deep into the prestige class, um, which would mean that uh, Sagas was level 8. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, nevertheless, that still means that, you know, odds are you're probably never getting to to get deep into that prestige class in most campaigns. And so there's a huge number of players who just would never get to experience any of those abilities, which means that it does kind of put an emphasis on the earlier abilities that the class cl- that the uh, prestige class gets versus some of the later ones. Whereas with uh, subclasses in 5e, it really does let you kind of um, experience more of a wider breadth of what those classes have to offer, I guess. Um yeah. Uh, I agree. It does. It does give you the the option of under undertaking prestige class paths earlier, and um, that is cool. Uh, I would never have played an Eldritch Knight otherwise, honestly. <laughs> um, not because I had no desire to. It just it just would never have happened, but. I do like it. 
Like, just because it was awkward at first doesn't change the fact that I think it was a good change for 5th edition. Um, and Pathfinder 2nd edition doesn't really have prestige classes either. Do you think for similar uh, reasons? Simplification, yeah. Just give people more options earlier and not have to worry about a whole different class. I think that's basically why any system would do it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that... Like, one thing I will say that the subclasses don't do very well, and one thing that I do miss from it, is that I do feel like the prestige classes did very much feel like like a big turning point in your character's development. Whereas I do feel like the subclasses like often don't really get like they don't feel like a climax to your character. They don't feel like a huge turning point, typically speaking. Um mm-hmm. because it's just like my character is a warlock and has been the entire time. Um yeah, maybe I'm packed to the blade now, or maybe I'm, you know, I'm a you know, chain warlock or whatever it is. But like in other systems where you do have prestige classes, it feels like it's a big moment to like take your first level of a prestige class because typically that was how you distinguished yourself um, mm-hmm. from other members of your class. So I do think that you lose a little bit of that, like almost like that goal that you can set out to have as a PC. Um, so it, it, you know, I do miss that sometimes, I guess. You lose some kick. Yeah. Yeah. You lose some, some, feeling of progression even though you get a little bit of progression every time you level up you feel like you progress significantly more when you have hit the prerequisites to a new class yeah it feels like a big moment right whereas like mm-hmm. you know like for instance i, I played D on a wednesday campaign um mm-hmm. and we just leveled up at the end of our last session right awesome right i'm really excited 10th level all right I'm a 10th level necromancer. Do you remember offhand what 10th level necromancers get for their class uh, ability? No. Not even a little bit. Okay. A 10th level necromancer receives a resistance to necrotic damage and their maximum HP cannot be lowered. Those seem like good abilities. They do seem good, but they also feel like abilities that should have been significantly earlier in the character tree, right? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of like my my frustration with it. It's like they're not bad, but they're not flashy. And I do think that prestige classes do add a level of flash to characters that I don't think that subclasses always deliver on, particularly later in the levels. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that. Um, I remember the first time I got my first level of Sith Apprentice, and I was very excited to take the talent Dark Healing. Which is a thing that Jedi can't do. Just sounds awesome, personally. Yeah, and it was. It was dope. Yeah. Um. Do you remember the first prestige class you ever played, period? No. No, I don't. <laughs> so I do. Um, uh-huh. And in 3.5, they had Dragon Disciple as one of the prestige classes that was available. And it was clearly designed as a sorcerer subclass. Um, in fact, that's probably where the... where the um, Okay, you just sent me the name of this class. The, the Dragon subclass for a sorcerer came from. Oh, uh, 
draconic bloodline. Yeah, that's probably that origin, or it's trying to do that in spirit. But mm-hmm. the the dragon disciple class in three point five, one of the prerequisites was being able to cast without having to prepare spells. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had to be arcane casting, so it couldn't be a cleric. Um, in three point five, they did distinguish between divine casting and arcane casting. Something that I'm very happy they got rid of in three point five because, again, just you're just making it more complicated for new players. Um, right. In my opinion. So dragon disciples, they you know basically they could they gained like various adaptations from like dragon kin. So like they got like wings, scales, extra AC stuff like that. You know, and it, it wasn't even like a super great class, but. I did find that um, I think it was one of the like Sword Coast Adventure Guides had Hexblade as one of the base classes you could pick in 3.5. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ran a Hexblade Dragon Disciple, and that was the first time I ever got to actually play a Prestige class, and it was awesome. Because um, I, I just remember playing that class and really enjoying that, like, oh, I can fly in. And like it, it was just, A, it was one of the first times I got to really go high level in a class, and mm-hmm. B, it was just really memorable experience despite the class itself not being all that that memorable really uh yeah that's pretty dope so hexblade yeah went from a base class and now it's a subclass to warlock so you know significantly different than they used to be though for sure oh yeah oh yeah um, their, their whole shtick in 3.5 was they could cast touch spells through their melee weapons as a part of the attack. So good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like, I've been thinking about it since you asked, and I didn't remember. I feel like my first prestige class was something from Tome of Magic. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. Because Shadowcaster was my favorite class in 3.5. Man, from the Heroes of Horror uh, book, was it? Mm-mm. Tome of Magic. Was that the same one that had Binder in it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Right, right, right. I remember that was a partic- that was a particularly thick book, if I remember right. And then it had, like, the most unfortunate base class of True Namer. Yep. Uh, that was a class oh, that could have been Namer. so cool, but just was not. Was not at all. It, it could have been the greatest... Such a cool concept, but um, and honestly, like now that I'm thinking about it, that, actually would be a really cool concept to run for a three point for a five five E campaign. Actually, mm-hmm. like have a have a bad guy whose magic is just the true naming of stuff, and like maybe he's trying to like discover the true name of like a deity or something. That would be cool. I'd play that campaign. Yeah, you know, free real estate for anybody who's watching. Um. <laughs> Um, uh, wait, isn't that just the plot to Aragon? Is it? I don't think I actually read that series or watched the movie. I'm pretty sure all magic in Aragon is true name magic. That's probably true. I mean, a lot of a lot of fiction, I think, uses the concept of like true names or like like magical arithmetic and things like that to kind of represent magic or like explain it away. In some respects, um, so you know it yeah. might, but I think that's a pretty common trope, actually. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um. Yeah, I want to say it was Shadowmaster. I think it was Shadowmaster, Master of Shadow. 
whatever the the very obvious I'm better at shadow casting class was. Yeah, there was a God, I wish I remember the name of it, but there was a rogue sub uh, rogue prestige class in 3.5 that had an ability that I'm kind of sad never got replicated into 5e. Um, called Shadow Step. Do you recall that ability? Uh, is that the Shadow Dancer one? Yeah, the Shadow Dancer, like, key feature. Yeah, I, I definitely remember Shadow Dancer. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised. Like, so for those of you who didn't play 3.5, um, the Shadow Step ability on the Shadow Dancer allowed you basically to teleport from one shadow to another. And I'm kind of shocked that that ability just doesn't exist anywhere in 5e that I could find. You know what system it does exist in? You're going to say Pathfinder. Pathfinder 2e. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That sounds like a great segue. So what are some things that you really like about about Pathfinder? Oh, Flink is saying that it is in 5e? What teleports through shadows in 5e? I'm just going to Google it. Way of the Shadow. Don't tell me the fucking monks get to do it. If monks get to do it, I'm gonna be mad. It would explain a lot why it, it would explain why I don't know that that's a thing though, uh, because I hate monks. It's the sixth level Way of the Shadow ability for monks. Man, screw you monks. You gain the ability to step from one shadow into another. When you're in dim light or darkness, as a bonus action, you can teleport up to 60 feet to an unoccupied space that is also in dim light or darkness. It's literally the same ability. <laughs> That's awful. And that explains why I've never seen it, right? Because I've never felt the desire to really like play a monk um, in 5th edition. But I'm, I'm mad. I, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm mad. The Way of the Shadow Monk is just a shadow dancer without perform. That's so sad. This is wild. I, I don't like it. Way of the Shadow is the only non-Warlock class I played in 5e. (laughs) Sounds like that was a mistake, but... Oh, man. I have to get my mind off of this, because it's going to make me mad. Um... (laughs) Uh, Funny asked, there's a second edition of Pathfinder? Yes, there is, sir. Uh, It released near the end of 2019, and it's basically Pathfinder's version of 5th edition. Um, yeah, one thing I do like about it actually is um, Pathfinder's distribution model. They actually have a paperback version of the core rulebook. So, you know, I think that's a really cool way. They're actually releasing paperback versions of every book a few months after the hardcover release. Yeah, and I think that's awesome. Just makes it more affordable to get into the game. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because I tell you, like, telling somebody, like, okay, you want to play Dungeons and Dragons? Great. Buy these, like, one to two hardback books, and then you can play the game mostly. <laughs> it's a you hard sell. Spend, you have to spend 80 to $150 on two books in order to start playing this game. Never mind the dice and any of that other stuff. Yeah, whereas I think the the paperback for for Pathfinder 2E is, um, like, 30 bucks. Yep. And it has all the rules for uh, for the DM, too, in there, right? Uh, the DM guide is separate, but honestly don't even really need the DM guide for Pathfinder. 
you don't technically need it for 5e either, but um, but there's some stuff that's in there that's nice to have, at least. Mm -hmm. I've opened it a uh, handful of times. I've been running Pathfinder 2e since... Basically since it came out. Well, since I found out that it came out. Because I, I found out about it a little bit after it released. And I have not opened the DM guide one time. Oof. That feels like a pretty strong reason to not buy it. Yeah, you don't really need it. Um, at least in my experience. But maybe newer DMs will want it. Yeah, I mean, there's something I to be said like to have that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you. I was just echoing what you were going to say. Oh, I was I was gonna say, I feel like that's who it's made for, anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, DM guides in general are made for people who have never done it or have only done it one or two times and need a little bit of assistance in figuring some stuff out. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So, so again, I haven't played Pathfinder before, um, either edition really. So mm -hmm. what are some of the key ways that it's different from like 3.5 or 5th edition D&D for someone who hasn't played it at all before? So Pathfinder 1st uh, edition is almost identical to Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. Um, progression is the same. Prestige classes function the same. Classes function the same. Magic functions the same. Almost everything in Pathfinder 1 is the same as 3.5. The only difference in any meaningful way is there are combat maneuvers, which is things like trip, uh, pin, etc. Those are figured out in a different way. And I didn't play enough Pathfinder 1 to actually learn how it's calculated. I see. So I guess almost like some of the sweets in um, sagas, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what about 2E, then? 2E is... In concept, it's the 5th edition of Pathfinder. As in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Um, there was a lot done to broaden the appeal and simplify the system uh there's no prestige classing and no and very few subclasses so wait did pathfinder um, look over to D and was like hey can i copy your homework and 5e was like sure but just change a few things kind of <laughs> uh but not quite um so you will for your class, you, you choose a class and you get one class. Um, and there are there are some ways to customize with just what your class has to offer. Um, but their multi-classing system is you use feats to get things from other classes. You can take what is called a dedication feat instead of a feat that your class would normally give you, to tap into abilities from other classes, effectively. So there's a cleric dedication. 
So if you want some cleric stuff, you start off by taking the cleric dedication. And every time you would get a class feat, you can instead take one of the archetype feats. And that's in air quotes because that's exactly what they're called for cleric. And it's a, it's a selected list of cleric feats that you now have access to because of your cleric dedication feat. So you basically have to burn a feat in order to get access to the talent trees from another base class? Yeah. But it's a curated list of the talent trees, so there are some talent trees that are off-limits unless you started there? Exactly. Hmm. Um, and also, your spellcasting will almost always be tied to that first class. That one class is almost everything you get for spellcasting, if there is spellcasting. So if you want to be a primary caster, you have to start one of the in like wizard or something, mm-hmm. or cleric, I suppose. Um, and even if you uh, later dip into wizard, you don't really get more spells for it. You just get the talents associated with the class. You have to use a whole feat to unlock spell casting at level one. So you get first level spells for an entire class feat, which you cannot take until sixth level. So as a 6th level character, you can get 1st level wizard spells. And I think it's only like 1 or 2. So the the issue is not that you can't, it's just that it doesn't scale reasonable enough. Yeah. Um, Which isn't terrible. Because if you're a casting class, multi-classing, so to speak, into another casting class, um, you're still getting your full spellcasting progression in your actual class. Right, so you're not really sacrificing anything on the base class mm-hmm. so much as just, well, the sacrifice instead of is instead of using the talents directly from your base class, you're doing something else, but you a lot of the standard progression comes from the base. Mhm. So I'm guessing things like your base attack bonus, your spellcasting, your spell slots, the spells you have access to, things like that. Uh, yep, spell HP. slots, HP, all of that is based on your actual class, the one class you get. Um, I also, I think there's only one or two dedications that even give proficiencies. Um, so yeah, you, you kind of, it's good and bad, because it gives customization to single class characters but it makes you a single class character every time you know i mean in a lot of ways it doesn't even really let you like you're still kind of a single class character in a lot of ways because yeah your your progression is tied to one thing or the other but the reality is that you're burning your talent tree in order to use the other classes so i mean in a lot of ways you're not really getting to get the benefits of either class fully uh, kind of. I'm I'm probably not doing a very good job of explaining this. You know, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this. Um. So, there are three kinds of feats in Pathfinder Second mm-hmm. Edition, which I should have started by explaining that. Um. So you get your your normal abilities for leveling up. These would be the class abilities in Fifth Edition. Um, and then you get general feats, which are 
the same as feats in almost every system. Right, Still like feats. every four levels. Uh, yes. I think it's three in Pathfinder 2e. But regardless of, of the actual level, general feats, very broad, lots of applications. Um, and then you get skill feats, which are feats that directly tie into one of the skills you have proficiency in. And then there are class feats, which are specific to your class on top of the normal progression-based abilities. So, um, for example, I'm, I'm pulling up just any class mm -hmm. to get an example. Um, oh, I lied. There are four kinds of feats. Okay. There's also ancestry feats, which are racial. Your race in Pathfinder is called an ancestry, uh, which you get at some levels. First, fifth, ninth. I do like that change in the nomenclature. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, I think it is very, very much more inclusive to say ancestry. I think so too. Um, yeah. So we'll go with fighter here. Um, so fighter gets an ability at level one called shield block. Uh, and that lets you reduce damage with your shield, right? Mm -hmm. That does not take the place of any of the feats you would normally get. That's just a progression-based thing. Right. So every first-level fighter can block with the shield. Yes. However, a first-level fighter will also get a class feat, which is a whole separate list of feats specifically for your class that you get at levels where you would where you're told you get a class feat. And those, I guess, are more akin to the talent trees from sagas. Yes. So you are giving up your talent, so to speak, but you're still progressing in your class, even if you decide to trade out your talent for the talents from another class. I see. So there's like some set of skills that you're always going to get regardless. Exactly. Okay. I mean, that's less of a feel bad than it sounded like initially. So I guess with all that, is that one of the things that you like about 2E as opposed to like 5th edition? Or is that something that you don't like by comparison? Uh, compared to 5th edition, I think I like it. Um, but compared to older systems like 3.5 and Star Wars, um, I think I like those system, the way those systems handle multi-classing and such more. Hmm. So sliding scale. So what is it that you don't like about 2e then? Your silence speaks volumes. 
have to actually think about it. Um, okay. Um, I, I guess while you're thinking about it, the one thing that I'll say is, I, I even though I've never played the system before, it does feel a lot like 5th edition to the point where it's a hard sell for me to want to play 5th edition. Um, <laughs> like, it's a hard sell for me to want to play it over 5th edition. Um I guess for me, like I, I, it doesn't feel distinct enough from what fifth edition is doing, I guess, for me to want to warrant spending the time and energy and money to, to learn it. I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. You know, like, especially given that like 5e has had a multi-year head start at this point. And it doesn't feel like the system is doing anything that's super in like innovative, I guess. To me, I would like given that Pathfinder's whole shtick was it's hey, it's three point five, but we learned from the stakes of three point five, so ours is better. Here, it's like hey, we're doing five e, but you know, and again, I'm not super familiar with the rules, so this is probably an unfair you know judgment. But to me, when I look at it, I have a really hard time like kind of seeing what the difference is. And I think that that's really important if you're going to try and rope people from a system they've been playing for multiple years that they may actually like. Because you're not going to get the people who don't like 5e, because the people who don't like 5e are probably not going to like your system all that much either, because you probably haven't done anything all that different to the point where they would like that instead. Like, I, I, I guess maybe um, to put it another way, I don't think that if you... I think that if you liked 5e, you'll probably like stuff from Pathfinder. But if you didn't like 5e, I think the stuff that you didn't like about 5e feels like it's probably going to be the same stuff that you won't like about Pathfinder either. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, because Pathfinder doesn't do a whole lot different from 5e. Um, there are some differences in, like, numerical values and, you know, the names of things, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the differences are, are significantly more focused, you know? You gotta, you gotta look for the differences if you're not actively playing the game. And then when you are playing it, you go, oh, that's different. Um, oh, we have a hydrate and a posture check. Uh, <laughs> fine. I will say that every class feels equally powerful in Pathfinder 2e, which I cannot say about 5th edition. Yeah, um, I think part of that, because it feels like Pathfinder has less base classes than 5e, is that right? Is that fair to say? Uh, more. More, okay. Uh, so how do you think about that all? It, it was the same, but now it's more. So how do you think it pulled off that balancing act then? Probably a lot of playtesting and not giving Ranger everything useless. <laughs> well, my my uninformed opinion is that I think you do kind of circumvent it a little bit by allowing every class to potentially take talents from every other class. Mm -hmm. um, because it means that no base class will be totally useless. Because there's you always have the option of taking talents from somewhere else. 
in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also they also do all have their own individual advantages. Um, some of them would be some of the base classes would be considered uh, subclasses in Five E, mm. like Swashbuckler is dangerously close to a rogue subclass. <laughs> yeah, I think it actually um, is a subclass for rogue in Five E. You you might be right. Um, however, it's probably in Sword Coast. It is, uh, <laughs> In Pathfinder, it is different enough that it can't just be rogue. Mm. Um, and it has its own benefits and downsides. And um, Or like Oracle in would, would just be a cleric subclass if it was 5th edition. Um, but they get enough different spells. They get there's a, there's a separate kind of spell called focus spell, which you get even more limited access to, uh, similar to um, channel divinities. Okay. Uh, every every cleric subclass has different applications of channel divinity. Um, in in that way, every class that can cast spells has different applications of focus spells. Um, so it's the same general term, and it's the same pool between all of your things that give you focus spells, but the focus spells you can get vary very, very, very widely. I think I get it. Uh, So do you think it's easier to, as a dungeon master at least, do you think it's easier to, to DM for 2e or 5e? Or sagas, I guess, since we talked about that quite a bit. Well, I'm always going to say it's easier to DM for sagas because I am the most familiar with that system. Like, of all of the three systems that we have, we have mentioned, I am intimately familiar with Saga Edition and how the vast majority of it interacts with everything else. And I can't say that for sure about Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. So I guess if we were to boil that down to like advice for another DM, just play what you're familiar with. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Well, no, not necessarily. I think getting out of your comfort zone can be very good. Um... Which is the main reason I picked up Pathfinder 2nd Edition in the first place. To do something new that I had never done. Um, and to learn something that was new. You know? Mm -hmm. um, but the thing you know the best is always going to be the easiest thing for you to do. Yeah, well I guess like it's... Um, there's like a certain inertia that you're working against. You know, whenever mm -hmm. you want to pick up a new system. And yeah. I think that, for that reason, I think that 5e made a right choice in trying to simplify how to run the system, as opposed mm -hmm. to, like, you know, doing whatever the fuck 3.5 3. was doing. Um, 
everything. So, it was doing everything. Oh my god! It just there was rules for rules for rules, and it just went all the way down. And I think that that's really harmful if you're trying to get somebody to get like really interested in your system. And like, three point five and Pathfinder First Edition are really good for a certain kind of player and a certain kind of DM who really likes to kind of do a deep dive and really kind of tease out all the individual like micro advantages and disadvantages that you can find in the system. And for teenage me, that was awesome. But for adult me, that's, you know, doesn't have that kind of time to, to dig in. It's, it's a harder sell. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Uh, if, if, you tried to get me to learn 3.5 for the first time right now. I just couldn't do it. I don't have the time. And honestly, I don't think you're going to attract this, like all that many people. Like, I think part of the reason that, that, you know, tabletop role-playing games have kind of seen this resurgence that they're experiencing, you know, with the popularity of D&D in most recent years, you know, part of it is from, you know, just more pop culture awareness, like, you know, Stranger Things, you know, introducing it back into like the pop culture uh, lexicon, but I think part of it, it has a lot to do with the fact that the most recent edition is just really, really easy to get into for someone who knows nothing about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, uh, especially because there was the uh, the starter kit, which gave you everything you needed to to play, and you know, it here's four characters, play whichever one you want. You can change names and whatever. Uh, here's an adventure. For three levels, this should take you maybe five sessions, and it cost, and it it had a version, a slimmed down version of the player's handbook, mm-hmm. and it costs like twenty bucks. Yeah, I mean that's that's cheap enough where like, you know, if you have access to income, you can afford that. It's not going to like totally break the bank. It's like the cost of a standard board game. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper than a lot of board games actually. Yeah, point exactly. Flink says um, I'd quit tabletops altogether if 3.5 was my entry point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. Case in point, man. Uh, Soto said he gets so overwhelmed trying to learn the rules of any system. Yeah, that's just what happens. There's a lot to learn. It's a lot. That's a lot of people, and like I think that that's why like it takes a certain kind of person to to like say I don't know anything about this system. I'm gonna learn how to run it. <laughs> like it's not easy to do. Um, uh, without someone to kind of walk you through it. I will take that compliment and I will pass it on. <laughs> because that's the kind of person that I am. I mean, it, it was definitely aimed at you, but there's definitely a lot of people out there who... Um, technically, I did it too with 3.5, but the, the point still stands that like not everybody is willing to kind of jump in with both feet to like learn it well enough to teach it to somebody else without somebody right there to kind of walk them through the thing. Um, You know, on kind of some of those first tentative games. And I think that that's... Like, if if you are a DM or if you want to DM, certainly it benefits you to have played some games as a player prior to jumping in with both feet, but if you never have before, you can still do it. It's been done. Mm -hmm. It does take a little bit more legwork up front, though. Um, As you're going to have to to learn a little bit more of the rules than perhaps you would otherwise. Um, that said, don't get hung up on them. Like, it's totally okay if you don't get it right the first time. It's much more important that everybody's having fun. As I always say, the rules are more of guidelines. Yeah, 100%. Like, um, you know, I remember uh, we were talking about sagas a little bit earlier this evening, 
and like I threw a lot of this stuff in the rulebook out when I was like creating enemies for my players to fight because truthfully it just wasn't going to be challenging and I wanted it to feel challenging and dangerous and I couldn't do that with the rules as they stood so I just threw things out and I just said all right I'm just going to make a monster that always hits like I'm not going to it's not a role to see like how frequently there isn't a number I'm attributing to this I'm just going to roll a damage dice and that's how much they're going to take <laughs> and that's just how it's going to go yep and also King Flink he decided to use a whole different progression system than what was written in the book it was like feats every even level and stats every odd stats every odd level right that yeah. sounds that's not how the rules are in Star Wars Saga Edition. It might have been vice versa. It might have been stats on evens, feats on odds, but nevertheless. You're, you're right. That's what it was. Because I remember everybody got a feat at level one. Well, as written, everyone gets a feat at level one. Well, I mean, like, that was, like, the base point. So that's, like, it was one, yeah. three, five, seven, nine. Yeah, that made sense. Um, and it was just because he thought that would be more fun. Like... Screw the rules. We're gonna have a good time. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, and I think that's something that sometimes you know new DMs get a little bit hung up on that. That's like what the rules say. Mm-hmm. And even sometimes veteran DMs get really hung up on it too. And ultimately, yeah. it just matters what you know who's who's enjoying it. And you know, if your players are having fun with the way that you're running the game, then I encourage you to keep doing that thing. Yeah. Uh, getting back to Pathfinder, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I do very much like about Pathfinder 2nd Edition is how they handle things like Half-Elf and Half-Orc and Asimar mm-hmm. and Tiefling. Um, so on top of your ancestry, you get a heritage. Okay. Which is, you know, if you've played 5th Edition, you know what sub-races are. Right. Uh, hill Dwarves and... Rock gnomes. Rock gnomes, drow, those kinds of things. Um, things like half-elf are just sub-races. Okay. So whatever you are, whatever your ancestry is, you could be a gnome. Um, as written, you can be half-gnome, half-elf. Uh, or like if you're a goblin, you could be a goblin tiefling. So half goblin, half devil. I think you asked uh, me that, didn't you? I did. I don't remember what I said anymore. Uh, I think you went with tiefling. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I very much like that because it doesn't have to be a whole race if it's you know, thematically, a tiefling is just someone with one devil parent and one non-devil parent, you know? Yeah, or just there's just devil blood in there somewhere back, you know, if you go far enough back. Yeah, or like half-elf doesn't necessarily need to be an entire race. Um, I mean, it doesn't even make sense for it to be, because honestly, the, the circumstances creating a half-elf have to be so varied across the the various stories that you could run that like it doesn't even make sense they're not a culture um exactly um like i very much like that you can be 
half Tengu, half Elf. Because it just kind of makes sense if these races can breed with each other. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, there's rules to make half anything. There's, there's a, a guideline on how to turn any ancestry into half this. Oh, cool. Like half Gungan, right? Uh, we're not doing that. <laughs> not that one? It's not allowed? We're trying to avoid those abominations ever again. <laughs> Never again. Well, you got that right, Flink. They were probably sterile. Um, so, <laughs> like burrows. Um, oh. Anyways, um, but that is something I very much like about Pathfinder Two E. Just that those those quote unquote half races can be half anything, half that. I like that. I, I think that that honestly, like, you should just be able to do that in 5e anyways, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a shame that the rules as written would force a DM to really kind of come up with something on the fly. Um, yeah. Although I will say that with um, Tasha's Cauldron, their custom heritage, like, their custom backgrounds, um, custom races, rather, do help mm-hmm. facilitate that um, now um, beforehand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, King Flink says uh, anytime a player complains about me not letting them do whatever stupid idea they have, I say ask Marvin and Owen why <laughs> that's fair yeah that's fair why can't I, I be half Gungan? oh trust me, you don't want to it could have turned out significantly worse than it did um, it could have um but it also could have been significantly better if they weren't half human, half Gungan. Yeah, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> when you kind of roll the dice on the, <laughs> when you kind of roll the dice there, you know it's gonna happen. Um, these True. things happen. Uh, speaking of rolling dice, mm-hmm. what are some other systems that you have rolled dice for? You know, not as many as you'd think. Um, you know, we ran... I mean, obviously you're aware, but we ran the, the Pokemon Tabletop Adventures for a while. Um, and that was definitely interesting. Um, obviously, we ran uh, Vane City, the you know, King Flink's uh, homebrew game. So, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Um, so those are definitely two systems that I've rolled for. I'm trying to think if there's any other roleplay systems that I like spent a significant amount of time playing. I might be missing some of them, but like those are the ones that jump out to me as like I remember playing this game. Um, LFO, of course. LFO was a good one. Um, but what are some things maybe about a uh, Pokemon tabletop that you enjoyed? I think I really enjoyed the intimacy of the of the campaign. Like, I know that's a weird thing to say, but, like, I think that that system was really well-equipped to run very small parties. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, the way that the system was set up is each player was a Pokemon trainer, which meant that each player had multiple Pokemon they were managing, you know, one or two Pokemon they were managing in any given combat encounter. And I think that because of that, that system was was particularly well set up so that you could run a a, a campaign of only like two players and not have it feel that empty or at least it never did to me um 
And that's something that I always really liked about it. I also liked that while Pokemon battling was an element of the of the system, that your player character could focus on stuff that was not battling, much how characters in the actual show would focus on a variety of different things. And I liked that that was an option as far as like how to engage with the game's story um, and the system mm-hmm. in general. Um, that it wasn't like everybody was an ace trainer. Like you could just play a chef if you wanted to, um, or a professor or whatever, and you weren't required to be like, you know, very focused on like having extremely strong Pokemon. I would say. I do like that. Um, not having to be a battler definitely made it feel like you could do anything in a way that the games don't generally make you feel like you can be. Yeah, a lot of times in the games you're kind of on on rails, as it were. And, you know, obviously it being a tabletop, that's not the case. But I, I like that the that the way that the system was set up, that it afforded you the option to, to find non-combat means of, of resolving the game. Um, you know, but, you know, and I guess, like, to kind of expand on the point of, like, smaller parties, like, I personally like smaller parties i find that the role play tends to be a little bit more intimate a little bit more like focused on the particulars you sometimes with larger parties you can find that some players will get lost in the shuffle a little bit on individual Mm -hmm. sessions Um, or if the player is particularly shy and you're not catching on possibly multiple sessions in a row where their character just may not contribute anything meaningful Um, so i find that this way with a smaller group it does give you the ability to kind of focus in but because every player has multiple pokemon you never feel like your party is missing any role like you would in like fifth edition or, um, or something along those lines, because in that system, if your party doesn't have a healer or range DPS or, you know, a tank or whatever, you know, you can run campaigns with those things missing, but as a DM, you have to be a lot more cautious about the kind of challenges you throw at your, at your uh, players versus I felt like Pokemon tabletop adventure, as long as you weren't over leveling the Pokemon they were fighting Generally speaking, it didn't actually matter all that much. That's a good take on that game. Now, what were some things you disliked about it? How much time you got, buddy? Um, (laughs) um, So I would say the biggest con to that game is it is, uh, you know, it is to... It is to tabletop role-playing games that EVE Online is to online multiplayer games. Um, <laughs> in that there, it's it's like spreadsheet inception. Um, and I think that's my biggest complaint about the system, is that as, as smooth as combat actually was, um, and again, like, for what the system was, combat was... <laughs> Flink says it's a strikingly accurate comparison. Um... So, but like as smooth as combat was and as easy as it was to to battle the pokemon and make it feel like you know pokemon were were effective and you know i don't know the combat felt good in my opinion managing those pokemon was abysmal it was miserable it is easily the single most miserable experience that i've ever had playing any tabletop role-playing game is managing the character sheet character sheets sorry 
of my Pokemon trainer and their adjacent Pokemon. Because in that system, basically every Pokemon had its own individual character sheet. And this in and of itself doesn't sound that bad. Okay, well, you know, if I have a team of six Pokemon, wait, hold on, that's seven character sheets. Holy shit. And what happens if I have Pokemon in the box? Holy fucking A. And I'm tracking EVs for all of these Pokemon? So I can, like, track the level? Like, this is just ridiculous. I, I don't know who thought of that aspect of the system, but they need to be, like, bludgeoned with a rock or something, because clearly, you know, they weren't getting any good ideas with a functioning brain. Um, I think if I were to do that system, I would pare down the way that leveling worked, because I think that they were more focused on replicating the finite control that you have over Pokemon that you do in the actual video game. And they want to kind of, I, I think they want to replicate it too closely to what the video game did. And the video game can get, can get away with it because it automates everything. But when you're manually tracking all that stuff, it's just not very effective. So I think that what they should have done, what would have made more sense in my opinion, mm-hmm. is simplifying the Pokemon's um, sheet and simplifying the way that like kind of the Pokemon leveling system worked while keeping some of those core elements. Um, and I don't know how you do that necessarily, but I think that what they ha- what they ended up with was too much. And, you know, granted, that's where a lot of the complexity went because your trainer character sheet wasn't actually all that complicated. Um, but because you're replicating it over so many different Pokemon, if you wanted to have a variety, you know, like God forbid you were a catcher, right? Um, I think that that was the single biggest weakness is the amount of bookkeeping you had to do for that system. Yeah, that's super fair. I definitely, I definitely agree with that in almost every way. <laughs> um, King Flink says you need to hydrate after that rant. <sighs> hydrate. I'm gonna go. I'm literally gonna go pour myself a mojito once we're done here. I swear to God. <laughs> And uh, Numenon says, you want players to really explore the possibilities that the world has to offer and feel freedom, but you don't want them to liberate themselves from the world and just to generate the structure of the world or depreciate themselves as players. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good take. It, the thing is, like, I think that when you have a good rule set for your tabletop role-playing system, the rules do not become a burden to what that player wants to do. And I think that that in that game, the rules became cumbersome to the point where it would interfere with actually wanting to play the game itself. Same, same thing with 3.5, by the way. I feel this way. Where I think the rules were so complex that it actually interfered with actively playing the game. And that's one of the reasons I think that 5e hit a really good balance on it, where, you know, by and large, the rules don't actually get in the way of a whole lot. Generally speaking, if you want to do a thing, you can usually go and do it. Or at least make the attempt. Right, right. Um, in a lot of ways, and I know that the, you know talking about homebrewed systems is not the most you know stimulating combat for everybody uh, content for everybody watching. But when we were playing um, King Flink's you know Vane City system, I think the early iterations of that system were a lot more entertaining to me because of how open ended it was. Um, in that you know because a lot of the rules were kind of ill defined, it left a lot to the imagination. And I think for that reason, it was really more like guided improv than it was necessarily a tabletop role playing game. But I think that that was to the game's benefit, given how open-ended a lot of the power system was, um, given that it was like a superhero role-playing game. That's fair. That said, I know you played some of the later iterations. Do you feel differently? Um, 
I definitely did enjoy the play style of the first Bane City iteration more than the rest. Uh, but I also think that I like that campaign the least out of all of them, just because of how the storytelling changed after we kind of like got into the universe, into the world. Um, well, I can't really say that because after Guardian's death kind of hit me really hard. And I'm sorry for anybody who's listening that doesn't know any of this stuff because I'm not explaining it. Um, <laughs> so I guess the second half of the first iteration of Vane City is actually probably the most fun I've had with Vane City. Um, just because I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And it just felt good to just go, I'm going to throw this guy at that thing and it's just going to happen. Um, but I feel that also makes it more difficult for the the GM to run it. So I understand why it had to change from the GM perspective because you you want you want some structure and there wasn't a whole lot of it in the original iteration. Mm-hmm. So. I think I think King Flink hit a very good balance uh, with the most recent iteration between structure and improv and role playing and yeah I mean I like obviously I have a somewhat you know rocky history with the system because obviously you know because of my you know my personal situation I had to kind of bow out of the game um, at one mm-hmm. point or another. And so I didn't really get a chance to kind of finish playing it, but I will say that um, I had a ton of fun, and I still like vividly remember a lot of those early combat encounters with my character, not just because of you know enjoying playing the character, but because of just how how creative I had to be about the way that I approached each of those fights. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think that like I don't know, it like it stimulated a certain part of my brain with the way that I was kind of analyzing a fight scene versus in like. 3.5 or 5th edition or sagas even where like because of the structure that's in place it does somewhat limit the way that you start to think about combat in generally uh, in general rather um, you know because you start to think like in terms of like actions and movement and like oh is this an action is that going to be better than me just taking an attack right like that's the thing you know and depending on your GM like you could be really punished for like skipping an attack um you know, or depending on the table, they might kind of moan if you try and do something creative. Um, if that is the case, by the way, find another table as people are assholes. But, you know, <laughs> I, I understand that peer pressure to like, you know, I'm the damage dealer of the group. I should be dealing damage. But in Vain City, I don't think that that was really a thing. Like, certainly some characters were better at offense than others. But I think because of the way that the power set was was super nebulous with what your character could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm that it encouraged, A, for the players and GM to work together to kind of describe how those power sets translated to actual abilities within the game, and B, it encouraged the players to collaborate with the DM to come up with creative ways to apply those abilities, um, you know, to form a means of actually, like, harming the enemies um, or restraining them, if that was your, your purview. But often we were just trying to kill them. We were not good people. 
Cypher was a good person. Yeah, Cypher was a good person. Um, I tried to drop kick a lady, like through them off a so. building. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I justified it to myself, and that's all that really matters when you're a hero. Right? Uh, no, that's not how that works. I mean, as a hero, you can always rest assured knowing that your moral judgment is is infallible. And thus, any decision that you make in the course of trying to bring justice to the enemies is always righteous. Clearly. Mm, I don't think that's how that works. I mean, most of the Justice League agrees with me. They are the ones with the giant laser satellite. Uh, first of all, the Watchtower is not equipped with any weapons. <laughs> I'm sorry, they just have, you know, you know, seven or eight of the you know most powerful human beings and or human-adjacent beings in the you know, known universe or whatever. I would argue that those are weapons. They always question whether or not they're doing the right thing. They don't just justify it to themselves. <laughs> I feel like Batman's the only person who does that. Except for the assholes like Batman and Guy Gardner. <laughs> those people always know that they're right. Um, they always know that they're right. All that matters is what they're doing or what their mission is. Yep, makes sense. <laughs> and that's why people don't like Guy Gardner. Batman somehow gets a pass? I can't explain that. <laughs> Numenon says, question authority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eat the rich. Um, <laughs> right, um, but yeah, I think that that was, for me at least, that's kind of part of the reasons that I really enjoyed that system. And, you know, there are definitely times where I'm like, oh, I, I, I do miss it in some respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, like, if I were to try and create a role-playing system, as I, I dabbled with before, um, I generally would lean more towards starting off with very few rules and then adding stuff as needed. Yeah, that makes sense. As we did kind of do a... Um, you know, like, I, I did run the Magic campaign for, like, two sessions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was a similar deal. Like, I was just kind of riffing off of whatever was there. I didn't really have a rule system to speak of. We had uh, we had actual physical magic cards. Yeah, that's close enough, right? Um, <laughs> close enough to actual rules. But I like the idea of it, like where it's like I have these like kind of broad representation. Like it's it took a similar approach to the OG Vein City, where you mm-hmm. have this broad strokes kind of explanation of what your character's power set is, and it's mm-hmm. up to the player to kind of find creative impl- uh, implementations of those abilities. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you just never got to play more than two sessions. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but it was still enjoyable, at least to me anyways. And, you know, some of those ideas I have continued to kind of take through and, and utilize in other places. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for you at least, if we were to kind of like think about it, what are some of the things that, you know, I know that you're obviously working on your own system, but you know, when you're kind of approaching that that task of starting to design, where do you even start? Because for me, again, I kind of start with bare bones and kind mm-hmm. of add stuff from there. What was your your kind of process for that? Um, well, my system is is themed on an existing property. So it was really, how can I take this thing that already exists and represent it in tabletop role-playing terms? Um, and it didn't hurt that somebody had already started 
um, a kind of conversion system from Saga Edition to Fantasy using a lot of Final Fantasy elements. Um, because I didn't come up with all of this originally, even though I have recreated everything that I'm working with now from scratch. Um, the first iteration was largely done by somebody else. <clears throat> um, and I kind of just took it and ran with it from what they had uh, started with and never finished. Um, but at the point I'm at now, it is... It's mostly about what are the, the abilities that I want to represent in the system. Like Final Fantasy has the, the typical black mage, fire, thunder, blizzard. Um, how can I represent the black mage in this system with this mostly already existing rule set, right? Or Kingdom Hearts has Keyblade wielders, you know, they're kind of a gish character. They can hit with their sword and they can do, you know, some amount of black mage and white mage abilities. Again, fire, thunder, blizzard, heal, or cure. Uh, how can I represent that in a system? Um, and a lot of times it comes to just making it a class. How does the Black Mage work? Well, the Black Mage is a class in Final Fantasy. So we'll make it a class here. So I guess in some ways it's kind of like starting, you kind of start from the flavor of the thing and kind of work outwards from there. Yeah, at least for this, um, which is the only uh, homebrew system that I have ever worked on for more than five seconds. Uh, this specific thing, flavor is the big thing since I have an existing system already. I gotcha. So when you're kind of working on, on the system, I know that you're kind of utilizing or borrowing a lot of the rules from sagas. What are some elements of that system that you're looking to kind of improve upon? Because I know we kind of talked a little bit about some of the stuff you didn't like about it. Um, and I also know that you mentioned you didn't change anything yet, but are you intending to? Uh, I have changed one thing, and that is the way force powers work in... Uh, Star Wars Saga Edition is severely unbalanced and it was the first major change that I came up with and it was instead of having a base attack bonus and having all of the magic work off of your spellcraft check like in Saga Edition it works off of your use the force check I made a second kind of attack bonus um specifically for magic because so many of the characters and classes have some amount of magic available to them uh i think there's only two out of ten base classes that have zero talents that can change how magic works mm -hmm. uh, so it became relevant since so many classes can use magic to make magic balanced in a way that it's not in Saga Edition. I think that's a good approach to it. I mean, not I mean, not the change specifically because I don't know what the implementation is exactly. But what I mean is like the approach to problem solving, where you're not just changing something in the system because you don't like it. You're changing it mm -hmm. because in order to 
to do what you need the system to do, something about it has to fundamentally change to to get mm-hmm. that out of it. You're actually solving exactly. a problem and not just changing something to, for the sake of changing it. Exactly. And, I mean, the, the change is, instead of having a base attack bonus, mm. every class has a martial attack bonus, which weapons, unarmed attacks, etc., and a spell attack bonus, which is, you know, all of the magic things. And they work like a base attack bonus normally would. Each class is given a progression and for each one. And while it's another thing to keep track of, it makes magic work better mm-hmm. without requiring, you know... To balance to skill have. checks against defense. <laughs> Exactly. You don't have to balance skill checks to defense. You don't have to worry about having a base attack bonus if you want to tie magic to an attack bonus for wizards or whatever. Um, it's its own separate thing. Question. In in Sagas, how is the skill check calculated? Oh. Um, it was stat plus, like, what, half your level or something? Stat plus half your level plus five if you're trained. Plus, Plus another, another five, five if, you, if you, focus. you focus. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, I think because they made the decision to do force powers through the use of the force check, I think that necessitated them factoring the level directly into the AC. Uh, yes, probably to some extent. Because if you think but... about it, like, if you don't do that, you can't scale... The, like, because of the way they calculated the skill check, there's no world where they could do that and not have level factor into your AC in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is that um, if you do if you do skill focus and use the force at level 1 and you have a plus 2 in charisma, uh, you automatically have a plus 13 to hit. Which is a lot. <laughs> Against a reflex of 14 to 16, um, which means you realistically only have to roll a 2 or better to hit. Um, but at higher levels, you, you start to have the opposite problem. <laughs> yeah, you have to roll significantly higher for force powers to hit anyone. I guess in some respect, that kind of has the it kind of has a problem like with the way that the game scales because what it means is that your characters who are of higher level actually have to work harder in order to do the things that they used to be able to do relatively easily earlier on. Yes. And I think a lot of that comes down to the defenses and how they're calculated. Um, So I... But at the same time, attacks generally scale fairly well with defenses in Saga Edition. Which is why the change was, instead of making it a skill check where you hit every time at level 1 and never at level 20, it progresses fairly equally. <clears throat> I think that makes a lot of sense. And I know you had mentioned that you didn't really like the damage threshold thing. Are you just going to kill that? or? Uh, I'm... I'm probably going to keep it since it is a, a core element of the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it doesn't serve a purpose in the system. And I, I am basing this largely off an existing system. 
So until I have a specific reason to remove something like the damage threshold or the, the three defenses, I'm going to keep them in. So what purpose do you suspect that it's serving, then? Um, well, there are specific attacks made to re uh, lower someone on the damage threshold. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't remove any of the ones that I was given from the existing system beforehand yet. Um, and I think that's a, a valid strategy. Instead of dealing damage, you just make people sleepy. <laughs> in some ways, it's kind of similar to uh, the exhaustion levels in 5e. <laughs> Would you consider perhaps doing something like closer to that instead? Where instead of like numerical disadvantages, it implies it, it instead adds cumulative disadvantages that can be um, you know numerical, but often you know are spread out across a few different things. Um. Well, I don't. I think the exhaustion in Five E is very similar to the the condition track in Star Wars, like. There are there are they a lot serve of similar purposes. There. It's just that in Star Wars, sometimes just a lot of damage does that. Um, but there aren't enough things, I don't think, at least the way the system is set up now, that would make it good enough if it wasn't tied to your fortitude defense and some amount of damage. <clears throat> if that makes sense. Um, because attacking the condition track as a strategy is still tied to hitting and making that first drop happen. You know? Right, right. Uh, it's just that you get more drops if that's your focus. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess you'll have to keep us updated when... Uh... You know, if you uh, you know, do any anything further with the system. Yeah, sure. I like talking about this kind of thing. I mean, I think it's good to kind of just kind of look at it from the game design's perspective, anyways, and just kind of think about, you know, what am I trying to optimize for? Yeah. Um, and uh, Lord knows that I like talking about game design. It's definitely a highlight. Um, you know, certainly as somebody who's dabbled in designing a few different games myself, you know, it's it's something that, I don't know, it tickles a part of the brain that you don't really get to utilize all that often in my experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, that said, I know that we had agreed that it would uh, be a somewhat shorter episode this week. Um, so did you have any closing thoughts uh, on our topic for today before we uh, sign off? Um... Well, before I actually answer that question, hydrate. One last hydrate. <laughs> One last for the road. <laughs> uh, this hydrate is courtesy of my cousin, Lexi Runners. And uh, I feel like we need to have another episode about things we like from other systems. Because I feel like we didn't talk about a whole lot of the things we actually like. And we touched on a little bit of it. We, we spent a bit of time talking about the stuff we didn't like for sure as well. <laughs> Which is not what this episode was supposed to be. We had a whole different episode for things we don't like. I mean, I think sometimes it's it's okay to just kind of turn on the mic and just kind of see where the conversation goes. I mean, isn't that what we do every time? 
it's kind of the same thing. Um, <laughs> um, maybe we can spend a session uh, kind of re-engineering the Pokemon uh, role-playing system to not oh, be garbage. Boy. I don't even... Well, I think they're actually doing that. Yeah, but like I could do it faster. There's just, We could definitely do it in like two hours. It's not a big deal. I, we could try. <laughs> you know what? I don't think we'd do it, but we could try. <laughs> Might be a good uh, a good challenge stream, right? Like trying to to re-engineer a gaming system to correct some like major oversight in in the time that we have, and then running a game to see if it works, and uh, see if it's better than the thing that some people have spent years doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, because obviously we could do it better. Um, although I will say that you know one important part of the game design process that should not be overstated is the importance of iteration on design. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, if you are trying to design a thing by just sitting and talking about it for two hours and not actually trying to do it or making any adjustments, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so, um, but nevertheless, uh, yeah, I agree. I think that we could definitely spend some more time on these topics. Um, kind of talking about what we do like and, and dislike. Maybe keeping it a little bit uh, narrower in scope so we don't get you know off rails too, too much. What are rails? Um, they're those things that as a DM you set up so that the players don't realize that they're actually bumpers on the lane. Oh, I don't even do that. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I think we'll go ahead and call it there. Um, so with that, I do hope it, uh, everybody has a great evening. Uh, if you are catching us live on the broadcast, I will eventually update the back episodes on YouTube uh, for slash Vlad Beaver. Um, if you you know if you do want to catch some of the older stuff that we did, um, Marvin, you're still streaming. Uh, yes, sir. Still streaming. Twitch.tv forward slash Kyogetsu. What dates are you doing nowadays, or what what days of the week? Uh. Just Wednesday, aside from this show, is guaranteed. Uh, sometimes I'll do a Friday. Um, maybe a Saturday if I'm really, really bored. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, please tune in. Uh, if you are watching, please, you know, drop us a follow or uh, subscribe to the channel, either of them. Um, or you can, you know, drop onto the YouTube channel, and, you know, you a follow there you know, or subscription or whatever they call it there and uh yeah yeah thank you so much for stopping by everybody uh i hope you uh have a great evening and uh go roll some dice have a good night everybody